All right. Here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome Science back. in between. Science in between. This that's Scott. Scott. Uh, that's Ollie. I'm Ollie. And there here we are. <laughs> yeah, that's our, done. That's our robotic <laughs> introduction for this we're, we're, episode. We're embracing our inner chat GPT. What that what chat GPT would t- sound like. Yes. Uh, if if yeah. it was doing this podcast, which it is not. Yeah. I know this, this episode. Authentic voices. This is our authentic voices. <laughs> Maybe that's an episode <laughs> we should do in the future where we where we have to do all of our talk by typing into a Word document and having uh, it re- read it. That we'll put that on the show notes. That'll be a, I mean, it'll be a bonus show, a bonus episode, right? Yeah. And n- notice that that did not sound like Calypso Joe. That was not a Calypso Joe accent. That was no, that was no. just a robotic voice. Just a robotic voice. <laughs> Calypso so, Joe did not make an appearance. No. <laughs> <laughs> I should I should ask ChatGPT. Who clips a joke? See if he... <laughs> what is well, what is uh, the what is the relationship between Ali Dreon and Calypso Joe? Oh, that's nice. Uh, yeah, that this episode is actually not about ChatGPT. That we're just or remarking, about Calypso Joe or about Calypso Joe. We're just remarking about uh, the ChatGPT episode a few few weeks ago, a few episodes ago. Now we're a little bit ahead of the curve with that because yeah. like it's just blowing up everywhere right now. But you know, like ever, I like I can't tell you how many articles i've seen in the new york times and other places so many of my colleagues are sharing stuff but that's not what this episode's about so it is not we were how we how we got to this topic is we were talking about like you know teaching in a post chat gpt world and how you know oral exams and things are you know one of the solutions one of the things to to think about and then we're you know kind of stumbled on the whole dissertation process and how you know how dissertation processes work, and I just happen to have a dissertation defense, uh, a uh, a proposal defense today, yeah. and so it's it's actually later on this afternoon after we record this episode, and I was like, well, you know, this would actually be a really good time to talk about this. I see, yeah. I see what you're doing there. Yes, yeah. yeah. I see. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think I think it's also interesting because it fits. It does connect to the Chat GPT thing in the sense that. The purpose of a dissertation, at least in theory, is to is to produce new knowledge that we contribute to a field. Um, but in the context of you know ChatGPT, like write me a dissertation that's about X, Y, and Z. And if you didn't have length limits, like who knows what kind of right. documents you could get out of that? So, so I think you know I think what we're sort of going to do is talk about dissertations and dissertation defenses as as a context where new knowledge is created um, and how we deal with that currently. Um, we're not really going to talk about it unless it, you know, in Ch- chat GPT terms, unless that becomes super relevant. But I think it is interesting for folks to hear about um, how this process plays out and how new knowledge quote unquote gets developed in the field through these, these processes and what else they do for people. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things, or that's kind of cool, is that you know I defended my dissertation to you. You were my chair, and Correct. so um, that's kind of a a cool perspective on this. And that you know, while I've chaired probably like a dozen, you know, uh, dissertation committees now in my role at Millersville, um, and really you only get one of those, right? Like typically, you only From get the other one. Side. Yeah, what? Yeah, you typically get you know one person who's your chair, you know, unless you're going for multiple PhDs or multiple doctoral degrees, yeah. you know, you got one of those, and so it's kind of like a you know a cool thing that you know here we are, you know, 15 years later, which is what it would be. It's like right, actually, it's 14 years later. Um, yeah, yeah here we are. We're we're still on talking terms, right? We still yeah, speak barely. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, 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 and uh, you know, I, I, and we're 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 friends and all that, and we still like you know hang out and do all that stuff, and so I think yeah. that's a you know a testament to the process, you know, and also, but I, I, mean, I also think that sometimes dissertation committees can be pretty, you know, mm. fraught with disaster. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they can be they can be uh, difficult uh, things to navigate, especially Absolutely. if you're the student. Um, you can, you know, picking your committee is a very important task as part of your dissertation. You know, right? Like yeah. the people that are in that room 
um, are going to have a big impact on your life and, and choosing them carefully is, is important. And which, you know, I, um, I advise my students to do that and, and you advised me to do that. And so that is wise, wise advice. So I think that one of the things not everybody takes, Everybody does take it. <laughs> you, yeah, you and I both have stories. I'm, I'm sure, but I don't know if that's what we're going to um, spend our time. But I think that no. I, I think one we have to talk a little bit about, like, because I, I know before I did a, my dissertation, I wasn't really that familiar with the process, and sure. and so you know, there's there's and it's a little bit different, maybe at different institutions, but the the general structure is that um, at some point, you know, there's you know there's multiple benchmarks or rites of passage in a doctoral program mm-hmm. um at some point you go for candidacy right which you know depending on the institution um there may be some formal exams some sort of writing some sort of oral defense of that um i know at our institution at, at millersville um the candidacy happens about midway through the program after they've finished we have some research classes and we also have some practitioner classes because it's a, a leadership program and so about midway through right after they finish their research based classes they take a candidacy exam and they have you know we give them you know different articles to synthesize and then they come in and orally defend and they also you know at least at that stage talk about what their um their potential topic of their dissertation will be and then we you know uh engage in sort of a conversation it's it is an, it is an exam people have you know passed and other people have not passed you know and yeah. so but we can always give them an opportunity to to revise and and repeat and you know so it's not like a it's not like us ushering people out of the program right so so that does happen too i mean i think i mean one of the things i think that um is worth just taking a step back and talking about is how different um, doctoral degrees are from other kinds of degrees. Right. right? Um, And I mean, you, one of the things I didn't know until, um, until I learned more about the European version is there the European version of a doctoral degree traditionally in many, many countries that didn't have classes like it wasn't it, a, a doctoral degree that had classes in it was it was talked about as a taught doctorate and it was less prestigious it was sort of you know often like we think about sort of an edd and uh, right. an education doctorate in in the u.s so now that's changing and uh, sure. over there but and it's changing here too. I think that sure. that 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 division between PhD and EDD is becoming more blurred. Um, I think there are some places that have um, less practitioner based EDD. I think that's always been the thing for me is like, what do people plan to do with that? You know, yeah. and in EDD are typically folks, or at least the way it used to be, was people who would be working in some sort of practitioner based field, and you know, a PhD, PhD or people were working in some sort of like scholarship. You know, yeah. Doing research, yeah. Research or adding new knowledge or whatever. Yeah. But no, even I that, think that's right. Yeah. But even that has become blurred, right? Yeah. Uh, well, and I mean, Harvard, you know, famously only has an EDD. Like you can't get a PhD in education at Harvard. You right. can only get an EDD. So, um, and yeah, I mean, I think the, but the thing I think that's different um, to think about is, when you're an undergraduate, you take courses because they're basically required. It's like, I'm getting a bio- biology major. Here's the list of courses you have to take to graduate, um, at least at Penn State. And this isn't true everywhere, but um, we think about coursework much more like these are the courses that you're going to select that are going to help prepare you to do the dissertation that you're going to do, which means Ollie's coursework might look very different from some other doctoral right. student's coursework. Even a, a doctoral student who's working with me as their chair they may have, I mean, they're going to have some similarities, but they're also going to have quite a few differences. And I think, you know, that's interesting. And then um, the other thing is just that the second half of the degree, or sometimes it's more than half, because usually you do two years of coursework, two years of research sort of work. But that second two years sometimes is longer. Um, you know, you're really, it's really much more like an apprenticeship, right? You're yeah. doing work on a project of your own with support of colleagues and peers and, um, and 
that's a, that's a really, you know, sometimes it's difficult for people to make that transition to think like, well, wait, I've taken all my classes. Don't I just graduate now? It's like, well, no, that's, that's not the way it works. And the dissertation isn't just a paper at the end where you write like, okay, here's all the things I've read. I'm going to write a, a big, long paper, you know, summarizing all a, this stuff, right? It's exactly. not, uh, yeah, that's yeah it not has like- to be new knowledge. It has to be something that contributes something new to the field. And I think that that is that is a tricky thing for people to get their head around. Yeah, and I'll, I'll contrast it with our program in leadership. Uh, our program is pretty prescribed. Like, okay. you know, every person comes in, we have a cohort-based model. So everybody goes through pretty much the same classes at the same pace, um, and that's it. Like, there's no real choice. Whereas, you know, when I was at Penn State, I mean, I think the only requirements were I had to take two quantitative classes and two qualitative classes, and then any of those were choices. Yeah. And then everything else was made up, like not made up, but I selected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, since I was, you know, you know, focusing on science education, I took a lot of the science education classes. However, I was also really interested in instructional technology. And so mm-hmm. I focused in on instructional systems. I had a human computer interaction course, which was mm-hmm. really cool. You know, I was just taking classes across campus that I thought were would help to inform the types of work that I was interested, in, which was really great. It's also kind of intimidating because, you know, there's you have this whole big, you know, campus sure. of stuff that you yeah. can select from. And, you know, I I found it awesome. I found that process yeah. awesome. Whereas, you know, I think in our, our EDD program, it's it's pretty prescribed. Everyone's taking the same classes. And, you know, I, I think there are strengths to that. Um, we have a... a a really high uh, graduation rate, completion mm-hmm. rate. Um, and I think that's because the cohort is supporting each other and they're all going through. And I don't want to say that uh, I think some of that community is supportive and also, uh, com- I don't want to say competitive, but there is a little bit of like, hey, this person finished. I, we got to get it. So there's always that, you know, um, that pressure, that community pressure, maybe it's the yeah. way to say it, like to help or m- help motivate people to finish. And I, yeah. I know like doctoral programs are notoriously, um, you know, once people get the, the dissertation, I think it's like 50% or something like that. There's a whole lot of people who don't finish. Mm. Yeah. The ABD problem. Right. Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, <clears throat> I don't know if it's quite 50%. It'd be interesting to see what the numbers are from, from, uh, you know, Penn State, and obviously it varies a lot by advisor. Um, so, yeah, it could be with some people that you're more likely to finish, and and others not. But um, but I do think it's yeah, it, it's a fascinating process, and um, and you have to do you know, like Ali was starting to lay out these milestones. Like there are points at which you have to sort of have some exam like thing right and th- right. what those look like vary a lot but there's something at the beginning uh usually qualifying exam or something early on that is just uh i don't know a baseline almost uh then there's usually something at the end of your coursework period which is all, at least at Penn State called comprehensive exams so that is meant to be a milestone sort of before you start your dissertation but after you've completed the coursework bit. And then there's, of course, dissertation defense. In some cases, there's a proposal, which is what you're talking about, which is before that. And then the defense is the final piece where you have to publicly defend your work uh, in front of an audience. Um, So, yeah, it's... And and what we were talking about, at least in part, is um, how that process is is or is not authentic right how how it is a preparation for for doing the job whatever the job is sort of scholarly work post dissertation yeah but i think the that oral defense is the part where i i can remember vividly there are a couple of, like times in my life that i can remember vividly being in the moment of that yeah. right and mm-hmm. and while the the actual <laughs> defense like it, it was a funny day yeah, I mean, I don't know if you remember this story, but like you and and me and I think a couple other people had gone to lunch before, mm-hmm. and I tripped over a curb. Do you remember this? No. And and the, I and, the, and I I tripped over a curb, and the whole sole of my shoe came off. Oh yes, I do remember this. 
And oh. well, it didn't completely come off. It came off it just, ha- it was like a flap. Off. Yeah, it was like a flap. <laughs> and so here I am in like a suit, you know, and like walking with this flapping dress shoe. Yeah. Yeah. And so we spent, I don't know, a half an hour trying to figure out a way to not. And ultimately, we just put a big thing of duct tape around <laughs> it. Right. So here I am in a suit in this public place, you know, and I just remember, you know, before the actual defense, I was sitting outside the room while all of all of you were sitting in. Yeah. Um, and I'm just thinking, I have never actually had a moment like this. Now, I'm a you know pretty educated dude where I am doing something like this, mm-hmm. right, where I'm orally defending, you know, work that I had done or created knowledge I had mm-hmm. created and putting it out there for public scrutiny around like with with really knowledgeable people. And I had like some my committee was a pretty strong committee. There were yep. some like heavy hitters on that committee yep. and and people who are like, you know, one's like a president of a university right now <laughs> and another one is like, you know, these are like big yeah. name people. And and I just remember going, my God, I am not prepared. I've never I, – I, well, I'm prepared for this, but mm-hmm. I've, I don't have any experiences to have prepared me for this Yeah, because yeah. it's just not, not something that we do. Right. Uh, though I think um... – Yes, that's I think that's true. Uh in theory it it mirrors presentations at a conference, right? Because right. that's at a conference that's what you do. You have to get up and do your, you know, 10-minute spiel or 15-minute spiel or whatever. Um and it has to be about your research and your um, you know, your what you're positing as a contribution to the field. Um so there is an analogy there, but at that point in your degree program, you don't necessarily have that experience yet because to to do those kinds of presentations, you need to have produced new knowledge that is is a, you can you can present at a conference. So um, I mean, I think we've probably since you were here moved the emphasis more and more to having those experiences earlier in folks' careers, so that as a third year doctoral student sometimes even as a second year doctoral student students are going and and presenting work at conferences um when possible um because that does prepare you then for the dissertation defense because if you've done you know if you've gone to narst or aera or one of these other education conferences and you present it even if it's only to a room of 20 people um then you've you've got a little bit of a handle on what it's like to present in front of your dissertation committee and well i think Prior to my defense, I had presented at, at conferences. It's yeah, just, you yeah. know, and but those are, I mean, like a random collection of people who may yeah. or may not, you know, be, you know, knowledgeable about your subject, be interested. I mean, so I guess right. they're interested because they're there. But, you know, you know how these conferences go. It might be four people, four different presentations, and right. they might be coming for yours or they probably are not. Yeah. And and so, I mean. I, I I do remember maybe it was the second conference I'd gone to and presented some work and that was pre dissertation where somebody was really uh, took umbrage with mm. my definition of identity which I was I was drawing on one research community and this person do you remember this yes and, and this person uh took umbrage with that yes. yeah and uh and so it became something where you know I was. I don't want to say be, being defensive, but I had to like really, I had to defend yeah. my perspective, how I, you know, operationalized it um, and the research tradition I was, you know, drawn upon, whereas this person was coming from a completely different place. Yeah. And yeah. Well, as they say, right, we've talked about this before, the narcissism of small differences, like yes. no no fight is more vicious than a fight between uh, two academics where the stakes are zero, right? Like my definition of identity is different or better than your identity definition. Um, like in the end, who cares about that? But boy, yep. they can they can get nasty sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And and it was, I don't, I don't want to say it got nasty, but it definitely... Um, mm. For me being a doctoral candidate, I was like, I, I thought at that point my my whole career was over. I'm like, ah, yeah. 
Right. You know, I was, no. I, I think you and I might have gone to the bar after that. <laughs> <laughs> had, had a, had a cool down chat. Yes. You're going to be okay, Ollie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I have seen that person at other conferences. I have seen it like. Oh, well, that's she, the thing about is, it, right? Yeah. She has like burned a, a, a space in my brain. <laughs> right. Well, I wonder if the same is true for her, right? Do you think like, she sees you so. and she's like, no. I remember that guy. He... I don't think she re- I don't think she remembers me at all. I think I made no zero impression, zero impression. (laughs) Yeah. So, so like, so I'll, I'll say how the defense I'm doing today is going to go. Okay. So this is our defense. This is a proposal defense. So this person has um, written their first three chapters. And so the first three chapters of a dissertation is typically Mm -hmm. like, you know, setting the stage set the first chapter, setting the stage, setting the problem, you know, maybe talking about like, you know, the theoretical frameworks and stuff they're drawing upon, like situating the importance of why this is uh, something to to study. Um, Chapter two is usually the big literature review thing, drawing all the literature and trying to synthesize it. And also, you know, like we talked about, like putting a flag in, in the research traditions of which their the work is going to draw, and mm-hmm. so a lot of this, you know, has a lot of this work has so many different, you know, ways and spindles and all that. So it's kind of hard to like say, okay, I'm going to do everything. So you typically are just putting your flag in the ground, and saying this is this is where I see myself, and especially with things like you know, if you're studying something like motivation, or you're studying something like self-efficacy, or you're studying something like identity, which was mine all around ide- professional identity. Um, that's those are broad fields, and you're like just saying, okay, this is like my corner of the world. And the third chapter is methodological in nature. Um, so this is where the person's going to outline, um, okay, here's the kind of work I'm going to do. Here's the kind of data I'm going to collect. Here I'm going to how I'm going to analyze it. Um, and also talking about like maybe potentially only a biases, you know, in a qualitative mm-hmm. paper like mine was. Um, phenomenological in nature mm-hmm. <laughs> um that that's also a place where in chapter three i talk about my biases and i talk about how i have to like bracket that i have to like set it aside and the processes i'm going to undertake i think all quantitative and qualitative research has some sort of bias that needs to be addressed mm. and so that happens in chapter three um and then what happens with those three chapters with as a chair you know, we've gone through this, this person and I today um, have gone through probably seven or eight revisions of these three chapters over the last like mm-hmm. three months. And uh, once I think it's ready for prime time, I schedule the de- defense. And so this person's going to defend with the rest of their committee today um, and uh, sort of give me like a 25 minute presentation, not just me, but the other person, the other people on the committee um, and any other guests. I don't think we'll be any guests today. Um, it, but it's a public event. It can be a public event, um, I, but a lot of my a lot of my students don't really want that for whatever reason. Like I've had very few public events. Like I've had a couple people where they've invited maybe a family member or two, um, maybe um, some other students who, you know, maybe earlier in their career, earlier in their you know um, doctoral work, who want to sit in on one. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way I always do this, I don't know if we did this, but um, we round robin questions, but I always give my d- doctoral student the first question that I'm going to ask. I always mm-hmm. say, here's the first question I'm going to ask so they know. And it's usually I always go at um, what I think is the weakest part of their work. Mm-hmm. I, I go, okay, this is the weakest part of your work. This is the question I'm going to give you. Don't answer it now, but think about it. This is the way I'm going to word it. Mm-hmm. And so I go after the elephant in the room because there's always some like like soft underbelly of right. you know and that's what i try to go after is i'm like okay let's get this out of the because somebody else is going to say it why not me you know yep. um and that way it's no surprise to them what it is um and like so today the the my student is um studying engagement like and one of the ways they're operational operationalizing engagement is through attendance and discipline referrals. I know <laughs> all of you can't see Scott banging his head against the, <laughs> but but that is clearly one of the weakest parts of his his work because he's yeah. operationalized it in a way that there's so much added bi- bias, mm. right? Yeah. Um, because of I mean traditionally those measures, discipline referrals, attendance, 
you know, there's all these socioeconomic things that that influence those, so many racial things that, um, you know, it's 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 just a a uh, a flawed measure, and we mm. recognize that, and he recognizes that. Um, but you know, so we're gonna we're gonna go after that, you know, and he better have a good answer because he knows it's coming. Yeah, right. <laughs> He's prepared. Yeah, he knows it's coming. Yeah. Well, I think yeah, that's interesting because at at not dissertation defense, but but or not proposal defense, but dissertation defenses at Penn State, and I think in most places are required to be public, which is to say they have to be available to anybody who wants to attend, and they have to be announced. Um, and scheduled and all that fun stuff. So I think, and and I think that's an interesting, I think that's good. Um, and yeah, you do typically get family members, but also other members of the community, um, the dissertation, like the, the local community of people who, who are interested in this stuff, uh, doctoral students who want to see how this all gets done, how the sausage gets made. Um, sausage. Sausage. So um, yeah, I think, I think it's, uh, you know, it's an important, authentic task. Um, and, and it is, uh, I, I mean, I think it's a genuine challenge. It obviously um, creates anxiety for a lot of students. It can be really uh, tense. And so tr- figuring out ways to, to ameliorate that, uh, it's important, right? I mean, one of the things that I don't think was in place when you were here, but um, came around not long after was the pre-defense meeting. So we had a, we have a meeting with our students before the formal defense. That's not a, an official graduate school milestone. It's just a meeting that we do. Um, and the whole committee meets with the student and that's where they get the hard feedback. That's where they where they get the questions like, okay, this is a weak construct. How are you going to deal with it? And then they have a period of time to revise their dissertation before they resubmit it to the committee. And then there's the final defense. And and part of the reason we do that, or a big part of the reason we do that, is to take some of the pressure off the final defense so that you have an opportunity to improve the areas that are weak and respond to those things before you have to do so publicly. So um, but I think, you know, there, again, there's a lot of variation. Some places treat these things much more like hazing rather than, um, right. authentic tasks to their, their, uh, weed out process, especially the earlier milestones like qualifying and, and comprehensive exams. Those, those can be very, um, I don't know what the right word is, probably traumatic, um, in, yeah. in other areas of scholarship. Mostly, of course, the ones that we know about are science. Yeah. And I, I don't know who that serves. I don't know, like, um, because if, if we want to, I mean, I think with anything, if we w- want to use these as assessments, then I think that the, it doesn't serve anybody to make these assessments be traumatic like that. Yeah. I mean, unless you're like, okay, we want to like gatekeep. And if yeah. gatekeeping is the process, then there are other ways we should be doing this, you know, rather than public flogging. <laughs> Yeah, right. But I mean, this, you know, this goes back to themes of the show, right? Like how we think about assessment and what, what is it? What are, what is the goal of schooling? What, what is, what are we trying to accomplish with education? And I think those, those things get expressed very differently. And certainly this is one of the common ways that they get expressed differently is that some people see their role as a gatekeeper, right? Like my job is to make sure that the people who are not capable don't get through whatever not capable means. Right. So um, rather than, you know, this is a deficit perspective on learners, right. Rather than saying, what is it that our system is doing that is failing certain people, right. To not give them the support that they need to succeed. Um, And some people would say, well, not everybody should succeed at some of these things. Like, do we want everybody to be able to get a PhD? And then, 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 if that's the case, then that person should have never been admitted. Yeah, right. Right. Then, then someplace along the way, then someone either this, you know, didn't, you know, review applications, didn't review their materials, didn't, you know, or didn't effectively give feedback to people to help them improve along the way. And I think that's the critical part about this. And that's why I personally enjoy being a chair um, and I, I always work with students who know that this is coming. Like I give 
very direct, very candid feedback. Mm-hmm. And I have some students who love that, love that that kind of feedback that, and others that do not. I mean, I'm not going to tell, like, I'm not going to look at something and say it's great if it's not great. Mm-hmm. Or if it could be better, or if I know how it can be better, and I can give them feedback on like saying, "Hey, this needs to you need to reorder order this, or you need to get completely back to and reanalyze this." I don't if it's if, it, if they're months into the analysis process and it hasn't you know got to a point where it's gonna like really produce something, then they need to go back and keep mm-hmm. working and. And some students struggle with that kind of feedback from me and I'm direct and I, I'm not saying I'm unkind, um, but I think that's the critical part is that it requires – these things require people to help serve the students by pro- providing really, really good feedback mm. for growth. And yeah. if, if the person's not going to do it, like then it's – yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is why this kind of you know this is why assessment is such a fascinating subject, right? Is it where where does the responsibility for success lie, and how is it balanced between the person and the context slash advisor slash you know supports, right? So how do, how do you determine it, you know because you could certainly admit someone to a program who is not going to succeed. I mean, that happens, right? And now the question is, do they not succeed because they're not capable of the work or or because they choose not to do the work or because the system didn't appropriately support them, right? Um, And and that, you know, and that's tough because, you know, you you don't want to set up a system on some level where everybody succeeds regardless because then what what's the purpose of it, it on some level um but in some cases you do want a system where everybody succeeds so you just have to you know figure out what the what the goal of the system is right and uh but it's tricky it is tricky especially with um education because we have historically used education as a way to sort people uh, yeah. in into the most hireable and the least hireable um and uh that that continues into doctoral degrees too right i mean um who is on your committee becomes a bit a more important thing than the grades that you get to a certain extent um but but there are still metrics that people use to decide how successful you were as a doctoral student are i i don't know what those metrics are like what's it like the well like, i mean i think i think the metrics are more authentic in the sense that the metrics have to do with the the traditional metrics in research and scholarship, right? So oh, yeah. you're, you're a much more, you are, if you're going into the job market after a PhD, very few places are going to look at your actual grades um, from your PhD work, right? Like that, that's not what they're typically interested in. They may ask for transcripts, but even then most people don't. It's usually looking at your scholarship like have you been presenting at conferences have you is is the is the focus of your work interesting and likely to be a contribution to the field down the line as a as a trajectory right so it they you look for different markers that are not grades they are more authentic tasks that would be things that you would expect an academic to engage in so i think in that sense it's it's a better system. Um, it's not a perfect system because there's still lots of privilege associated with that, right? I mean, if you have a dissertation advisor who ha- ha- does funded projects, they're much more likely to have travel money so that you can go to conferences and present, right? Because if you, because going, especially these days, going to a conference is expensive. Yeah. You know, you're talking about, even if you do it on the super cheap, you're talking about probably 1500 to $2,000. And, you know, graduate students, surprise surprise do not get paid well no so um so that's a big that's a big outlay to go and if you're going to go to more than one conference a year then we're talking about you know three four five thousand dollars in expenses just to be able to present your work so um so yeah being able to present is in a in it in and of itself is a privilege um that is afforded to people who either have the resources themselves or who have you know, advisors or, or faculty that can support them. Yeah. And I, I th- I'd say that's one of the, 
you know, real big differences between our doctoral program is that very few of our doctoral students actually present their work in other places. I mean, they're cre- like, I will say that of the 12 dissertations that I've chaired, there's some really great stuff mm-hmm. that is coming out of this. And the the thing that that I would say, I don't want to say bothers me, but it, it's, is that the the knowledge doesn't go anywhere. It's just on the dissertation. It gets, you know, to some dissertation repository someplace and, you know, it's findable and searchable there. But very few of my doctoral students have the interest or ability to go present. And because they're all working in some ed leadership role, which, you know, taking a principal or taking a superintendent out of their school for, you know, three or four days to be able to go present in New Orleans or Orlando or Las Vegas is something that is is really hard when that's not necessarily part of their job. Right. Um, And so um, and I always feel kind of while I'd be happy to present with them, I don't want to present their work as my own. And yeah. so I've really kind of um, avoided that, avoided presenting or like I'd be happy to like, – I think I've had one or two maybe do local conferences, but nothing national. Um, but there's some really interesting stuff that folks have studied and um, yeah, and it just hasn't got out there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, and that happens all all sorts of places, right? You know, where people, for whatever reason, post post PhD, that's not the path they take, and yeah. so that work may only exist in their dissertation, and it may not be seen in publications out in the world that are available to everybody. Um, which, yeah, often is too bad, right? That 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 work, all that time and energy, you know, you spend. Essentially, you spend four or five years writing a book because um, most most dissertations are you know two hundred plus pages. Yeah. So you spend all this time preparing and writing a book, and then the book just sits on a shelf in one library. Well, these days it doesn't even do that; it sits in an electronic repository as a PDF. Um, back back when I finished my dissertation, you had to give a bound copy to every person on your committee. Um, but that doesn't happen anymore. So, um, yeah. yeah. What happens with, you know, so we have a partner, partner, um, school that we do this with. So our program is jointly shared between us and our sister school, Shippensburg and, uh, Shippensburg, that's still a requirement. So if I hmm. am a chair for a Shippensburg student, I get a bound copy. And if I want to do one, do one from Millersville, it's not. And so I, I have some of mine bound, yeah. but not, and yeah. Yeah. But I will say this. I mean, the the point of this conversation today wasn't to like talk about like the the joys or pains of uh, the dissertation process, but more to talk about like the value of the oral exam, like that. Like I think, you know, in this post chat GPT world, this is going to be one of those things that people are going to want to do. Is like, you know, I think, or it's something that we should think about ways to to do this like to do a because like primarily we've been like focusing on writing and like especially in online classing like online classes writing is like like do a discussion board post blah 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 um and i think that we're this is like a pretty significant moment in in the world like this is i don't think we should like dismiss it as okay so this new technology came out no this is something like radically different because because mm. it's 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 creating i don't want to say it's creating new knowledge but it's assembling stuff right mm-hmm. and from that assembling it's creating something that's new to this world mm-hmm. right now whether it's groundbreaking or critical thinking or whatever however you want to frame that yeah i, I agree but I think there are students who are going to present that stuff as their work. And I think that one way that people are going to, um, you know, try to combat that is by saying, okay, let's do some, you know, oral discussions or in an online class, record a screencast or do something where it's like, you know, in a synchronous session, you're going to present or talk about this or prepare to, you know, defend your argument or whatever, just to be able to better assess this and i think that there are lessons to be learned from the dissertation process i think i think one of the clear things is that you know we we can't have that benchmark exist without some sort of way of you know 
providing feedback leading up to it, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least like if we're just going to throw them into like we're going to have those traumatic moments, yeah, where people are going to like, yeah. Yeah. And if that's if that's the goal, then then let's just take a couple steps back because yeah. I don't think that's anyone's goal. That's not my goal. It's not no, great. hopefully it's not people's goal. I mean, I, but I also think the interesting thing about things like ChatGPT in this context is, you know, one of the biggest challenges uh, I see as a thesis advisor is, and I'm sure you see this too, is people learning to write. Like you have to learn yeah. to write well to do this. And I think it's an interesting notion about how chat GPT might be able to help with those sorts of things. Right. To say like, not, not to have it produce the whole thing, but, but for it to write a first draft and, and clarify the language, like you put in your sort of jumbled up language thoughts about this and it can essentially produce something that sounds more polished and complete. I think that's an interesting scaffold. Um, and what does that do now? Long-term, I don't, you know, you then, this is the calculator debate that happened, right? To what degree right. do you rely on the calculator so much that you don't actually understand the math? Um, you know, at what point do you rely on chat GPT or some other tool so much that you can't produce writing yourself? And and then the question becomes, how, how much do we care about that? Right? Because it gets really slippery fast. So I think it's, right. yeah, it's, it, I think this, um, you know, I mean, again, there's length constraints and others on uh, other reasons why ChatGPT isn't going to transform dissertations, you know, this year. But I do think um, starting to think about the relationship between tools, AI tools like this and the production of new knowledge is going to be something we have to grapple with. Yeah, I just yeah, with, as you were talking about that, anytime like you think about tools and community and all that, yeah. my brain always goes to like activity theory and like. Yeah. And not to get all nerdy and you know, theoretical framework BS and all that, but uh, I think there's some stuff to to learn and talk about there. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a but that that whether it's activity theory or not, that question has always existed. The relationship between humans and the tools that they use when they're doing something, and the norms um, of practice. Yeah, that's the and, big one. That's like we're in the midst of the norms of practice changing. You know, yeah, and that's the thing that we're going to see because I, I think depending on the community, there are going to be people who are going to be like banning and blocking. And I think yeah. there's a lot of, you know, uh, chief educational officers or associate provosts or high school principals who are scurrying to the look at their plagiarism policies and figuring out, does this cover, you know, a chat GPT paper, you yeah. know? Yeah. So, yeah. Good times. Good times. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think, yeah. I mean, I think there's always those responses, right. To any new, um, any new tool that humans get access to, whether that's a physical tool or some other sort of, you know, knowledge right. tool, which is some people say this thing should, should not exist. We don't want it. And we're going to figure out ways to make sure that people can't use this tool, at least in certain contexts. And then others who say, okay, well, given that this tool now exists, how do we change our environments to take full advantage of it and, and also keep true to the values that we have. Um, and I think, dissertations is going to certainly be one of those areas where this is going to be uh, a real conversation. Yeah. And I think it's something we can, you know, learn from, you know, if, uh, yeah. if, you know, cause I think that maybe it's not, it's somewhat authentic for the types of work we're doing, but it's also um, a place where people have to orally defend their thinking and their work. And I think that's right. a thing for us to possibly learn from. Yeah. yeah. But I think, I think the big difference really is that, you know, in a dissertation, the expectation is that this is something new, that this is novel. Yeah. This is a new contribution. Whereas I don't think anybody who gives an essay exam to an undergraduate class expects that the students in there are going to produce some entirely right. novel piece of work, right? They, they're expecting pretty similar things from most of their students year to year and within the class, right? So, um, not novel in other words. And so I think in those places, it, it's really interesting because I think chat GPT really takes the guts out of stuff like that. Yeah. It's going to nail those things. It's going to yeah. nail it. Right. So no, that doesn't mean it can't do it to other 
places, but in the places where at least that I've seen where they've tried to push it into producing new knowledge areas, like do, do analysis like that. It sometimes gets things pretty wrong. Um, right. Or it just makes up makes stuff. sense. Right. Or it just makes up stuff. Yeah. Well, Hey, good times. Hey, good, good times. times. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I really think we're living in a post chat GPT world now. I think that, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not overstating that. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that. You know, just by the nature of, I mean, and the people who are going out there and testing it are just helping it. Yeah, sure. They're building it. It's and making it better. They're just making it better because they're like helping it learn what questions it shouldn't answer. Like, don't ask it how to build a bomb. Don't ask it who the best Nazi was. Don't ask yeah. it. Those, those are questions is like, what makes the, you know this race better than another? Those are questions it's not going to answer. And, and, and it's going to probably learn other questions and shouldn't be asking you know, sure. or answering. Um, and then I think the other part is that the, the kind of clunkiness and robotic nature of it uh, is going to kind of get learned out. Yeah. You're going to polish it away. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be interesting. Yes. And it's it's this is the research and development phase of Chat GPT. Right. And so uh at some point I think it's gonna get put behind a wall. Oh, we, they've been pretty explicit about that, I think. So the question is like what does that look like and how long is it behind a wall and how much do you have to pay to get over, around, under, or through that wall? Yeah. Yeah. But so. Now we're going to talk about joys. Yes, joys. Oh, do you have one? Or do you? Sure. All I right. Have one. Um. So I, I like I talk I talk about soccer uh, slash football uh, uh, frequently. I think about how much I like it, but this week I just got to say my joy is Lionel Messi and Argentina. Um, like your man finally won the World Cup. Uh in a spectacular game against France that uh, like, I, I think I, I, I it almost killed me to watch that match because it was so, um, so many times when it was like, okay, they've got it sorted. Argentina. That's over. Win, and then, yeah. 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 And, uh, how much anxiety that produced. And, uh, but it was a spectacular match and, and, um, Argentina won, which, I think both was well-deserved and, um, and a huge relief for him. Um, maybe the greatest soccer player of all time, um, who hadn't, and then had not won a world cup and, uh, was constantly compared to his, um, to his predecessor, um, in Argentina, uh, Ronaldo, the, the original, no, wait, not Ronaldo. Um, oh my gosh. Ronaldino. Ronaldinho. Uh, I don't think that's right either. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm going to look this up in, in because I feel badly that I can't remember sure. who, who, who the original Argentinian left footed offensive player, uh, was that won won a world cup with the Argentinian team. But anyway, glad to see Messi over that hump. And now, uh, and now rumors that he's going to come play in the United States. So who knows? Maybe we'll wow. see him play here. And I think the other part that was really interesting about that match was that uh you could see a real handoff to the to the young yeah. Mbappe, right? Who Yeah I, spectacular. Yeah. That that guy it, I mean it, he's what twenty three years old and he had a hat trick in, in the match for the first time in, in fifty years in the World Cup final. So yeah. yeah. Which is pretty it's pretty amazing. Over fifty years. Um my joy is gonna go in a different direction. I've been watching like tons of movies and and TV shows just because, you know, the, the, the fall semester ended and I have a little bit more free time and I'm trying to get back to some of the things that were on my list. So I've watched all quiet on the Western front, which oh. is a new relatively new movie. Oh, this is the new, new, the one. new okay. version that was released sometime in the last couple of months. Um, it is, uh, yeah, you know, it's in, in a foreign language. So you have to kind of have a, you know, the captioning on, uh, it is if you like 1917, which is also a World War One movie. This is something you're just gonna love because uh, it's about trench warfare. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing. It's it's so well done. It's a little long, um, 
some of my friends who have read the book more recently said they changed the ending. I, uh, you know, it was high school when I read that book. So uh, I, I don't really re- recall the ending, um, but I won't get into how it ends, but I will say it is a beautiful, troubling, emotional, awesome film that people need to see. And uh, yeah, I, I strongly recommend it. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is amazing how, um, like how few films get made about world war one and how many films get made about world war two. So, um, yeah, I think it's, yeah. I, I've, I've heard good things about it. So I'll have to, well, it was, I mean, I think that the, the difference is that, you know, there, there, there was all this technology and all this warfare that was new that they were just like using and they're like going mustard gas. Yes. You know, machine yeah. guns. Yes. Right. You know, and, trench warfare yes and it was just like the 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 movie is set in the border between france and germany and these trenches are these trenches that they were like living in for years were basically hundreds of yards apart and the the actual boundary the front line between those trenches changed very little over the course of three years yeah like and it's surprising that like so much of the war was fought right in that area and yeah. so many people died in that area and yeah. the the that front line moved very little over yeah. the course of the war and it's like what the heck were they fighting over yeah. well and yeah i mean there's so many questions about that like the whole world war one but yeah yes yeah. yeah check it out it is it is really a great movie and i would suspect it's going to you know, this is Academy Award season, so this is where like movies sure. like this are, you know, typically find their footing. Um, and I would suspect that it would be up for some some awards, sure. probably in the you know foreign language speak you know category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. Yeah, All right. well, Pretty awesome. And uh, just so I don't feel like an incompetent, uh, Diego Maradona. Oh yeah, we should have gotten was, that. Yeah, we should have gotten that was the Argentinian player who won the World Cup in 1986 with uh with Argentina and led that team at the time um what was or maybe is considered still one of the greatest players to come out of Argentina so yeah Diego Maradona. So there you go. I like how you, I, I like how you do that right there yeah. that's that's, yeah. that's that's awesome that's uh, Cal- so Joe <laughs> I was just going to say that. Well, that's a place to end. We started with Calypso Joe. Let's just end with Let's that. Just end with Calypso Joe. <laughs> All right. uh, I feel like we should put a link to the Calypso Joe book. In, oh, in please. The show notes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We'll yeah. do that. Please. All right. Well, I'll, I'll do that. Make sure we put it in there when we edit this. So, hey. Yeah. Edit this. Yeah. yeah. All that. Whatever. All that. <laughs> All right. And we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Catch you then. Bye now. Bye now.